Well, today, in continuing on with the series that Scott started, we're going to be talking about fear. Um, I particularly decided to go with fear of giants. And then it occurred to me, well, everybody's a giant to me. So apparently, I have a lot of fears in my life I didn't even know about. So this photo comes from the seventh voyage of Sinbad, uh, which was made in 1959, I saw. Uh, best film ever. It was not really, but it's pretty cool for 1959. And, you know, I'm a guy, so I'm into things that kill and do stuff. Stuff like, you know, the important stuff. All right, so Israel left Egypt after 430 years of slavery. They're coming into the promised land. Moses sends out 12 spies, one from each tribe, to go check out the land. And say, I don't know why he did that, actually. It doesn't say. But he goes and he sends them out. They come back. And ten of them have a bad report, and two of them have a good report. One of the good reports comes from Caleb, the other one from Joshua, who will end up leading the nation of Israel when they come back later. But um, we're going to pretend to be in a Catholic service here real quick. So if you'd stand back up with your Bibles, we're going to read out of Numbers. See, now you would take a book like Numbers and think, what could the Lord possibly have to say, say to me in the book of Numbers that has value other than some Numbers? Well, we've got something here for you. All right, starting in Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. It says, After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. This was the report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and indeed it is a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak! Exclamation point. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Puebloites live in the hill country. You guys know your Bibles. Mom and Dad, they're Puebloites, just so you know. So, all right. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other man who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought, too. All right, you can sit back down. I have two more readings, but I'll let you sit through the next two. But a lot of times in, uh, in Scripture, you will see where people stood up in reverence to the Lord when they read the Word of God. So that's why we do that occasionally. Um, but you can show reverence while you're sitting down or on your face or on your knees or any other way. It comes from the heart. Amen? That being said, we still may stand sometimes. Okay. So he sends out these 12 guys. Two of them bring back the good report, as we just read. Verse 27 says, it's on the screen there too. He says, we could go up and take possession of the land, but he says, it does flow with milk and honey. 
God said it did, so he's just repeating back. Now they've got proof. They've got fruit. They bring this big old cluster of grapes, and they're like, what the Lord said is true. This, this thing is rocking and rolling. The people who live there are powerful. That part was also true. The cities were huge. They are fortified. That's true. And he says, we seemed like grasshoppers to them. And he said, in fact, we were grasshoppers compared to them. This is a large group of people. And I was in Iraq in 2008, and I kid you not, the urinals, the bottom of it was that far off the ground. <laughs> now, I don't come from the line of ancient Anakites. All I can say is, in as PG-12 as I can, is that I had to arc it. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I got a clap over there, so... Scott's going to be every time he leaves. <laughs> Sorry, man, you left the floor to me, and I'm going to do it. But my point was, I think they think that they were these ancient large people still, and they were pretty normal. So I don't know why the urinals were, it was, it was difficult. That's all I can tell you. All I can tell you. Anyway, the descendants of Anak are there. Now, these guys are no kidding giants. They come from a race of giants, which come from the Nephilim, which we'll look at in just a second. And they are real, and they're physical giants. Uh, when they talk about killing Og, king of Bashan, on the way in, he was a giant. Uh, and he has this iron bed, that I forget how tall it is, but he, some of these ancestors you'll see that that's who David ended up going up against with Goliath. And there's some, there's some relatives there, and I, I'm not going to talk about it today, but Caleb goes out and takes out some of these relatives later on because they're in his way. So he's, he's a real stud muffin, as we'll get to here. You'll see here in a minute. That that's a biblical Hebrew term, stud muffin. Okay. So one of the twelve is a man named Caleb. Now, he does not ignore the facts, right? He has a different attitude, and he looks to God as to be the one that says, we can go in there and take this, but he doesn't ignore the facts and say, oh, no, there's not giants there. He actually confronts it right off the bat. And we'll talk about some of these traits of Caleb here as we go on. But look at this photo of a giant, giant that's actually been unearthed. Now, this comes straight from the Internet, so you know there's no hoax there. But some, sometimes these, these photos are real. Sometimes they're not. It's, it's hard to tell. Uh, people are doctoring them or whatever. But they have unearthed many giant skeletons over the years. The Smithsonian Institute supposedly has thousands of these things at their disposal. But they keep them hidden because it flies in the face of evolution. And they would have to completely redo everything. And so those are not on display, but they exist. There's photos of them, people have had them, and they always magically disappear and get put into some archive somewhere. Now, I'm not Mr. Conspiracy Theory, and all right, it's Bush's fault. I get it. It's still his fault, right? I'm not that guy. But sometimes there are things going on in the realm of darkness where Satan and his minions are influencing people, and they are doing things. And evolution and teaching that garbage would be one of them, if you want my opinion. You may not want it, but I'll give it to you anyway. It's free. Okay, so... Some of these photos are hoaxes, like I said. Some are real. Um, the concept behind it or the belief behind it talks in Genesis. There it says, it's, it's kind of phrased weird, so there's some discussions there. It says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they had children together, and it created this giant race. The belief is that these sons of God were the fallen angels, or the ones that we now call demons, physically had the capability to be intimate with women here on earth and created this giant race known as the Nephilim. 
And so you have these descendants. Um, lots of archaeological records that verify these giants that were there and the things that they did. You'll have, um, which made me start wondering. So, you know, some of the um, ancient records will talk about sky people. Sky people came down, and at first you're like, all right, you're just going down this alien weirdness road. And, uh, and then you start thinking about, well, what if they were fallen angels that did come from the sky? And what if they did have relationships with women? And what if this did turn out like what we think? Some of it's conjecture, but maybe these shows like Ancient Aliens or UFO Abductions or this, right? You're about these UFO abductions and like, okay, what were you guys smoking that day, right? But then I started thinking about, well, what if it was demonic activity? What if they were taken by some force that was meant to look like an alien so it would make you question God? What if you had a past experience? You know how you hear like some of these bizarre stories. It would be a four-year-old. And in fact, I, w- I was reading one one time. This four-year-old said, oh, I, I used to be a black woman and I was killed in the Chicago fire. And this is a four-year-old. And his parents are like, what in the world's going on here? Right? And they look at him, sure enough. And then I started thinking, well, what if it was demon possession? What if this demon had lived 200 years ago and now lives in this person's body and you have memories? Right? When you start thinking about the demonic element and the spiritual element, a lot of this stuff could add up. Could. I'm not saying that that's what's happening. It's a guess. But it makes me, makes my head wonder. I'm like, okay. So some of the buildings that they have out there now, they have buildings that they couldn't reproduce today with our modern machinery. They can't move these blocks in place. Like there's, there's blocks of concrete and stuff that you can put, to, you can't slip a piece of paper between them. They are so perfectly put in line. And they can't even move them with modern machinery. And so uh, one of these books, and again, I don't get into the conspiracy weirdness stuff, but every now and then I'll pick up some weirdness just for fun. And I'll read these things, and they were like, well, these are angelic beings. They had, sar- they had far superior knowledge than what we have, and they could do things. They could move things. Um, they had mathematical skills. They had all kinds of things that they could do that we can't do. They're angels, evil as they are. So they're like, we can't reproduce it even now. So that actually fits in line. That stuff actually makes sense to me when I think of the demonic side of it. That's who the Israelites are encountering, are some of these descendants. Uh, They're called different names. You'll see Nephilim. You'll see Rephaim. You'll see some other. But some of these people, as they progress, they end up getting um, names like Goliath and some of these other folks who get six fingers and six toes. And they are some huge individuals. So we're going to jump ahead now. We're going to look at Numbers chapter 14. You can stand if you want to. You don't have to. The Lord will just consider it irreverent. I'm just just kidding. Just I will. Uh, I I was really just joking, guys. It's up to you. It's up to you. All right. So they go in. Ten of them say, we can't do this. Two of them say, we can It says, then the whole community began weeping aloud. I'm in Numbers chapter 14, in case I didn't say that. Verse 1. The community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. I'm not sure what's going on there, but the whole community cried all night because ten people said we can't take it, and two said we can't. That tends to lead me to believe that the the vast majority of the Israelites were siding with the ten, and that's why they were weeping all night. You ever had somebody just tell you something that just devastates you, and you're like, ah. 
and then you find out it wasn't even true, this is what's happening. Because it wasn't true. Had they trusted in the Lord, they could have very easily gone in there that day. But they took that word and went, oh, that's it. They whipped all night, bunch of sissies. All right. That's Hebrew, too. So their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? You ever had the Lord do some miraculous things in your life and then the following week something really horrible is happening and you're like, oh, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Well, I'll tell you this. If the Lord is doing it to you, it's to help you. It may not look like it. If it's him. If it's him. Only we had died in Egypt. All right. Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? These guys have been beaten and whipped for 430 years. And they're asking each other, I think Egypt is better. Can you imagine? Have you ever done that? You ever looked at your past and went, hmm, it was better back then, way before computers and iPads came along. We'll get there. Wouldn't it be better if we were to return to Egypt? They plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on the face of the ground before the whole community of Israel. Two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua, which by the way, Joshua is the only guy in Scripture who never had a dad, says, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Japuna, tore their clothing. They said to all the people of Israel, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. Right? Just like God had said. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It is a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. That was good counsel. You have two million Israelites that didn't take it, give or take. But the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me even after all the miraculous signs I have done among them? Okay, we can sit back down, those that are standing. That's an important piece right there because he's trying to remind them of all of the things that he's already done for them. He goes on to say, because Moses comes before him and says, Oh Lord, forgive these people. Forgive them of this sin of rebellion. And the Lord immediately says, I have forgiven them. They're forgiven right now. And I think I've said this before, but if not, I'll say it again. You can forgive anybody right now where you're sitting, by yourself. It takes one person to forgive. One. That doesn't mean you're friends. That doesn't mean you've reconciled. That doesn't mean anything else. It doesn't mean have anything to do with consequences. It's you letting the other person off the hook with no demand for repayment. That's forgiveness. Right where you're sitting. So later on when we have an altar call or something, you need to forgive somebody, go there. Do it. Right? It doesn't mean you're going to go have coffee with this person. It takes one person to forgive. It takes two to reconcile. You may never reconcile. 
God may not be asking you to reconcile. If you've been sexually abused by somebody, you're not supposed to go out to Denny's with them, right? Scriptures don't say that. You don't need to reconcile with that person, but you do have to forgive them because he says the, the measure you use will be used against you. So let's let these people off the hook. Not about whether they deserve it. They certainly don't, and neither do we. But that's the whole point. I've forgiven them, but... None of them are entering the land, he says. There's the consequence. Lord, I love you. I didn't mean to rob the bank. You're forgiven. But now you're going to prison. See the difference? Consequences are not related to the forgiveness. The slate can be wiped clean, but now I've got to pay the penalty. Right? God can forgive you for rolling around in poison oak, but you're going to be scratching for a while. That's all I'm saying. Verse 24 should be on the screen. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. So when it says Caleb had a different spirit, it means he had a different mentality, a different attitude, a different heart. All of those things combined, a different faith. He's like, we can do this. We can do this right now. And God says, you know what, because you said that and did that, I'm going to let you enter the land. However, the other two million Israelites, besides you, Moses, maybe Miriam and Aaron and Joshua, right? So minus five, we're going to have to pay the consequence now. So we're going to wander around the desert for 40 years. So don't ever think that your sin doesn't affect other people. It does. 99.9% .9 of the time. It always affects people besides yourself. But he had a different attitude, but he still had to pay the price. So I found a photo of Caleb on the internet so you can get a good idea of what his spirit would look like. True spirit. I don't know if you can read that at the top. It says, I was bored. My parents have chickens. I apologize for nothing. Chad just told me he wanted chickens the other day. I'm like, Chad, this is for you, brother. So, so 45 years goes by. Not just 40 because they had to do some conquering when they first get there. So now 45 years. Now Caleb, well, he'll tell you as I'm reading this. He's 40 when they started this. So now he's 85. But let me read this to you. This comes from Joshua 14, starting with verse 6 or 7. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave an honest report. That was, a, that was a good idea. It was a good man. But my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. For my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that day Moses solemnly promised me the land of Canaan on which you were just walking will be your giant... Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm on giant kick. It will be your grant of land and that of your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. Now as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well as he promised for all these 45 years as Moses made this promise, even while Israel wandered in the wilderness. Today I'm 85 years old. I'm as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. 
you will remember that as scouts, we found the descendants of Anak living there in great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land, just as the Lord said. So when we're talking about giants today, just remember that piece. If the Lord is with me, and he is, if you're a believer, I will drive these giants out of the land. All right? Now, he said in the middle of that that he is just as strong then as he was before. Look at verse 11. He says, the day he sent me out. Now, I don't know if God miraculously gave him some physical ability to stay as strong and lean and mean as tough as he was when he was 40, but now he's 85 years old. I just went to the DMV the other day, and I was renewing my license. <laughs> and I was good until it got up to the vision portion. And I'm on these, I was waiting for the eye chart, because I had memorized that a few years back. <laughs> eye chart was gone. Now they got these little goggle things. I'm like, oh boy, I stepped in at this time. So I'm fine as I'm on the left-hand side, and I'm reading the cards. They have these little three bars now of, of words and letters and whatever. There are no words. But I'm reading across there, and I was fine until I got over here, to apparently, to this right eye. And I'm like, LPR15. She's like, not even close. <laughs> so Heidi's sitting there with me, and I'm like, can you run out to the car and grab the glasses that I refuse to wear? <laughs> they gave me two sets of glasses when I retired from the military. He goes, I can get you bifocals. I'm like, that's not going to happen. Two sets. So one for reading, one for driving. But I never had to use them, I thought. So I'm looking through there, and I finally, and, I'm, and she's gone at the car, and I'm like, I'm just sitting there. They're letting me stay right there at the, play, at the counter. You know, I didn't want to get back in line. I finally start rubbing my eyes like this, and, and I look back down, and I can see it right that second. I'm like, LPN14Q. She's like, perfect. I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. No glasses are required on the driver's license. However, I'll be driving out there with you folks, so... <laughs> I apologize ahead of time, but they let me slide through. But I've seen some other people. I'm like, if you get a driver's license, I'm golden. So we're good. So God put his physical touch on Caleb for some reason. So then, shoot, I'm searching the Internet. What do I find? A picture of Mac Owen at 85. <laughs> and this was just yesterday because I hear he's doing P90X now. 30 years ago when he first went to CR, but this could be you if you trusted God more and had more faith. <laughs> Nothing better than dogging on one of the elders and they're not even here to have it. That's good stuff. But even if he listens to the CD, he doesn't get to see the photo, so it's too bad. But let's look at a couple. So, but it talks about how Caleb trusted the Lord. He said, if he's pleased with us, if we put our faith in him, he can do this. So let's look at that for a second. I'm looking at Isaiah 26.3. And it says, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. So what that's saying is, you will keep in perfect peace. What that means is, it can't get any better. You are at that pinnacle of peaceness, if that makes sense. Perfect peace. Him who trusts in you. Or him who is steadfast or resolute, or unwavering. It's the person who knows God's word, knows God's law, and they set their face like flint, and they're like, you know what, I know, and sorry, God, I have to go PG-12. Even though everything's kind of sucky right now, I'm staying focused on the Lord. 
I'm going to do what he's asked me to do anyway. Right? That's keeping that resolute, steadfast, consistent spirit that does what God wants you to do. And he says, God says, I will keep in perfect peace the person who's like that, the person who does that. That's where we need to be. So if you're feeling chaotic, if you're feeling like your life has gone all over the place, if you're feeling like you're running around with your chicken with your head cut off kind of mentality, maybe it's because you're not setting your face like flint. Maybe it's because you're not being steadfast in what the Lord has told you to do. And sometimes it comes back to something very, very simple. You know, you're, you're having trouble with your marriage. And you're like, oh, Lord, take her out. Because it's her fault. Every time. Right? And then I'll talk to people. And I'm like, you're not even nice. You're not even kind. That's like Christianity 101. You're not even doing the basic stuff that you learned on day one. For any human being, let alone your spouse. You don't talk nice. You're not nice. Right? Be nice. That's what I'm talking about, setting your face like flint. Are you doing what God has asked you to do so that the peace will then result? And a lot of times you're trying to find a way to blame for things, and it's because we're not even doing the very basic things that God has asked us to do. We're not consistent. But Caleb was steadfast. Let's look at trust. It means to cause God's help. There are several definitions to the word trust, but I like that one. This one's my favorite, because it's one of those where you expect God to act. When you see giants in your life, you want God to act. You expect him to act. He says you ask not, or you have not, because you ask not, right? So why are we not asking? Why are we not seeking his face? There's the, the parable where the lady's at the table with Jesus, and she's wanting some crumbles, and he's like... I, we don't take all this good stuff and just hand it to the dogs. Now, he wasn't calling her a dog. He was actually testing her. And she goes, yeah, but even the dogs get a scrap or two. And he's like, you're spot on. And that's exactly what I was waiting for. And so he says, because of you, if you keep on asking, you know, even the good judge will give you what it is you're asking for. But a lot of times we see the giants and we're like the Israelites and instead we weep all night. Instead of going back to the source right? He says, I got these giants. Look at some of these giants. Let's just say this is one of the giants in your life. This is a 13th surgery on your daughter's knee. Your spouse has cancer. Your shoulder's still not healing. You just lost your job. Your child turned their back on the Lord. Your depression is back, but this time it's stronger. <clears throat> the reason I bring up those particular items is because those are things that I know about in this congregation right where we're sitting. Those are some giants. Some of them are very, very physical. Some of them are mental. Some of them are spiritual. Nonetheless, they're giants. And so we have a response to make to figure out what it is we're going to do with that. We're going to be like Caleb. Caleb, we're not ignoring the fact that they're giants, but it's our response to it that's going to make the difference. We trust in the Lord's, Lord of Heaven's armies. So look at this photo. This talks about trust here. Kind of a little joke here about engineers. Just trust me, and I'm an engineer. As I looked at this with the candle heating the water there, I thought, you know, this isn't really a matter of trust. It really is a matter of living in Lake George or not. So this is how we do things up there is what I thought of when I saw this. But one of the things that I came across as I was thinking about this and where our trust is, a lot of times we put our trust in the flesh. 
we put our trust in ourselves to take care of it. You know, have you seen those bumper stickers that say, like, or they'll be on the windows and they'll say, no fear. I mean, you are so full of it. You are so full of it. You're telling me you have no fear? I don't believe you. I don't believe you. You got something. Everybody has something. The giant is still there. The giants are real. So you can't say that there's no fear because you walk around really, yeah, that one's huge. Some of these are big, big, big giants. But we don't put our trust in the flesh, be it myself or anything else. I don't put my trust in, um, my total confidence is not in the doctors either, right? It says in Jeremiah 17, 5, Cursed is the one who trusts in man who depends on flesh for his strength. You are under a curse if you trust in man, if you depend upon flesh. Let me step on some toes. That's what happens when Scott leaves. I step on toes. If you are depending on the next person elected to fix the world, you're depending on flesh, right? I don't care who the president is. I don't care who wins the state, the local, or whatever elections. That is not where I put my faith and my trust. My faith and my trust is in the Lord, right? And he puts the people he wants in place, even wicked people. God still does that. I'm not telling you not to go out and vote and do your part. Go ahead and go out and do your part, but know at the end of the day that God's going to put his person in there, right? That's how this works. Like it or not. Curse is the one who trusts in man. But the encouraging part is in verse 7. Blesses the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. I read a, a quip or a book, something one time. No, it was a sermon. This guy said, when you feel totally incompetent, remember one thing. You are. <laughs> what a great message, though, isn't it? Because it's like, you're incompetent. Well, I thought that. Thank you, Lord, for confirming that. Right? And he does confirm it. Here's the best part. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. In and of yourself, you can do nothing. You are totally incompetent, in case you didn't know that. Any talent or trait or characteristic or anything you have that does any good at all, God gave you that. Right? So you got nothing. You bring nothing to the table. And God goes, wow, man, that's awesome. Wait, I can't believe you created that all by yourself. Right? Incompetent. Our competence at the end of that verse, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, comes from God. So does your confidence, by the way. So Caleb, when he was going into the land, wasn't just saying, let's go up right now and we can take this here because I am a stud muffin. I can do this. It's because he had his trust and faith in the Lord. He's like, the Lord is with us. If he's pleased, we can do this. Right? So he had caveat on there. He wasn't going by his own strength. So do we fear anything including giants in our lives. Why do we fear? Glad you guys asked. And I think it's because, here's where my brain went. Fear, in my mind, so far as today, as far as my vast research on fear in the Greek and Hebrew, which was like two days, I think fear is a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual battle. Joyce Meyer has a book in the CD um, series called Battlefield of the Mind. And I think it is mostly a mind issue, a spiritual issue. That the things that make us fearful. The devil is only here, here to kill and steal and destroy. We know that, right? One of his tactics is fear, to get you to be afraid of something. Because if you're afraid, 
could be one thing, it could be 50 things, but it'll paralyze you. All right? We were talking about this this morning in the um, Bible study about spiritual gifts, that when you know your spiritual gift and you're doing it and you're rocking and rolling and you're banging on all eight cylinders, you feel alive, you feel like there's a reason for living, you know what you're here to do, you're doing it, you're not fearful of this, this, or this, because you are, you are walking what you're supposed to be walking. But you've got to figure out what those spiritual gifts are. You need to know what it is. And if you don't have that gift, you need to know the person who does. We were making jokes. Like, have the person that has the gift of encouragement, but they sit in the lobby behind a little desk over there. And you walk in, how are you doing? They're like, horrible. Well, go see Wendy. She's at the encouragement desk. She's, she's got the encouragement gift, and she'll, she'll hook you up. Right? So we started laughing about it. But wouldn't that be cool? I need a word from the Lord. Oh, there's the guy with the prophecy gift right there. Go see him. My leg's missing. Well, go see the healing dude. All right? I love it. I love that because those are spiritual gifts. But it's a spiritual battle. You know that Jesus conquered death at his resurrection, and we hear that all the time. You'll you'll hear it in sermons that he conquered death. And so as I was preparing for this message, I started to think, well, why why that first? Why that most? It occurred to me because that's the thing that we fear most or did in the past. We feared death most. And if you conquer that thing, then all this other stuff will seem piddly. It's supposed to. But sometimes we try to up the ante and make this one just as important. Right? It says in Hebrews that he too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So when he conquered death, he conquered Satan. He conquered that whole fear thing that Satan was trying to bring to the table. Conquered all of it in one shot. He conquers that. Now when you come up and you say, man, I don't know how I'm going to fix that transmission on my car. That's the second time this week the dishwasher went out. How are we going to (laughs) eat? You see what I'm saying? We elevate these things to this level. And I want you to know that your biggest giant looks as puny as your very smallest problem to the Lord. It looks the same to him. Think of your kindergartner. They come home. What's the biggest thing on their plate? They didn't get a little free candy from the teacher that day. Devastated. How am I going to get that thing back? How am I going to get back to a, a stature where I need to be? But you, as the parent, like, I can fix that in a half a second. We'll go to Wally World. I'll get you a case. Right? We'll go down to Costco. I'll show you some candy. That's our God. That's our God. Right? That's what your biggest giant looks like to him. The same. He didn't even have to go to Costco. He just goes, it's there. Right? That's our giants to him. They're not giants to him. Our God is the biggest giant ever. And he conquers all other things that look like giants. So if you are held in fear by anything, I want you to know that that is one of Satan's tactics. That's not from God. That's from Satan. So if something is giving you a fear of any kind, the only exception is fear of the Lord itself. We're supposed to fear the Lord in a reverent and proper way. I think it's more than reverence. When you see people in the scriptures who meet the Lord, they fall down in fear and they tremble at his word. It's not just a, wow, you really are the CEO, Lord. 
You know, if, if he were to appear right now, none of us would be able to get off the floor, if even stay alive. It says in, in Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but that's as an enemy. When he's on your side, he's your biggest friend. And trust me, he's the biggest giant ever, so that, that part ends up being awesome. So he took away our greatest fear first, which was death. So what I started thinking about is maybe our biggest fear today, as believers anyway, isn't death. Maybe it's life. Maybe getting through to the next day. Whatever's coming your way. Whatever giants that we have allowed to be giants. Because let's face it, what you consider a giant may not be a giant to somebody else at all. At all. You see people go through the exact same thing. You have kids that way. Raised in the exact same home. This one freaks out, and this one's fine. Right? Same exact living environment. But it doesn't matter why. All we, all we can tell you is the what. If that has made a giant in your life and you're freaked out over that, you need to come to the Lord with that thing. Period. So how do we fear not, as it says to do in the scriptures, over and over and over? I think Scott quoted it last week. It says, like, fear not, like 293 times or however many it was. Um, if you're like me, sometimes that's easy on paper. Because a lot of times I, I, I'm not fearing right that moment until something hits the fan. I'm like, ooh, that one's... A, and I wouldn't even call it fear. You know, in a man's world, we, we call it something else. Like, well, that one's got my attention, right? You've got to curb it, make it sound cooler than it is. We that's why we have the fear not stickers. By the way, if you have one of those in the church parking lot, we'll be watching. If fear had a face, this is what it would probably look like. And the closer I looked at that photo, that is not doctored. That, that kid is in utter terror. <laughs> Which made me laugh. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm not a pastor. I, I think that stuff's funny. All right, so, well, I'm a pastor. I'm not the pastor. So, the answer to our fears is to be like a Caleb. We want to have traits like Caleb. So, we're going to look at a few of these. I wrote five of them up there. First one is he stated the facts, right? Good and bad, he stated the facts. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't brush it under the carpet. If they, he didn't say, oh, there's, there's not giants out there. That's just a pigment of your imagination. Yes, I said that on purpose. The giants were real. They were there. He also said, no, the fruit is good. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. So he was good on both ends. We need to be like that. We don't want to ignore these giants and go, oh, well, I know you have. Well, this happened to Heidi and I. She had thyroid cancer. We were working for a Christian organization 25 years ago. And the people would come up and be like, oh, the Lord is sovereign. And praise God that you're going through this now. <laughs> I'm like, that was not my response. I was thinking to myself, I, I, I want to hit you in love from the Lord because of what you're saying. One, it's not encouraging at all, right? And I knew she's got cancer, and I know God has hands on this, but I want something that's going to lift me up. And if they just said, wow, you know what? It says to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, Hebrews 12, right? If somebody has cancer or they got something going on, you're not the one to come in here like, rejoice in the Lord always, right? You don't want to be that guy. They're not rejoicing. You get down and you mourn with them. And if this person just, you know, won the lottery, you go rejoice with them. 
right? But mourn and rejoice. And we need to figure that out. Instead of coming in there and you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, right? Where you're saying all these praise things, which are true, by the way, but they're not appropriate. It says in the scriptures that if you praise your neighbor at six in the morning, he's going to curse you. The Proverbs say that. I didn't say that. So there is timing. There's a way to do this in a way that doesn't, like, harm the other person. So Caleb did that. He said the facts. Yeah, there's giants, but there's this, too. Right? So when we're looking at our circumstances, we need to remember that. Yeah, I'm going through that. And if we're here to comfort each other, and I show up on your doorstep, I should say, wow, that blows. That's a Hebrew term. That blows. I wouldn't want to be there. You know what? Sometimes just to hear that takes some of the sting out of it. I'm like, okay, I'm not just making this up. They agree with me. That's helpful to people to say that. So he stated the good and the bad. He focused on the present, right? Israelites were saying things like, oh, we had it so good in Egypt. We had fruits and vegetables, and there was an in and out on every corner, and it was awesome. I mean, even when you read this, you're like, you're smoking crack? What are you talking about? You were getting beaten, and whipped, and they took away your straw at the end and made it even worse. And it was, all, it was 430 years of slavery. You couldn't wait to leave. And now you're thinking, yeah, well, there's giants over there, so I think I'd rather go back to that. Are you kidding me? But that's what they were saying. You ever glorified in the good old days? You ever had that mentality of like, oh, when I was a kid? Usually you get the opposite, though. People say, oh, it was so much worse. I had to climb Mount Everest and back down the other side to get to school. You know, same old, same old. That's right. We didn't have all these electronic gadgets, which is funny because they say if you want to keep a secret from old people, whisper or use technology. Think that through for a second. That's good stuff. But we complain. We just sit here and complain about society, today's youth, politicians, weather, I've never said anything about traffic on Highway 24, but some people complain about that stuff. Car troubles. You know what it says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13? He says, one thing I do. This is Paul. I'm sure he did more than this. He said, one thing I do. I forget what's behind, and I look toward what's ahead. I want to press on toward that goal. That's where his heart and mind was. So it doesn't matter good or bad, or I don't care how awesome it was when you were growing up horrible it was. Not that I don't agree with you. Like, we can look at people's lives and go, yeah, that was horrible. But you don't stay there. I press ahead. The only thing we have to do is go forward. That's the only option we have. You want to sit there and, you know, take your biggest worries that you have and write them down and just worry about them all day and watch how much better they get. Right? Go ahead, write them down. Press ahead toward the goal. So what's the goal? The goal is to be more like Christ. How do I do that? Easiest, simplest word I've ever found, practice. You practice. So when you're going through this trial, you practice being godly. Right? Even though you don't feel like it. You let your heart and your emotions catch up with your actions. Right? You used to say, let your smile catch up with your face or something. You smile first, even though you don't feel like it. Fake it till you make it. It's kind of like that, but you're pressing on towards the goal. I want to be like Christ. So how are you doing with that? Are you closer to Christ this year than you were last year? If somebody were to take a magnifying glass and look at your life, would they say that you are godlier now than you were 10 years ago? Sometimes I'll look at the fruit of the Spirit, and I'm like, man, 
I'm rocking and rolling. I'm like, oh, except for these three. Honestly, this is how humble I am. So I'll look at these. And in the following year, I'll be like, well, the first seven are now not doing well, and the last three are good. <laughs> and I have to refocus and come back. And then this, and then something else happens in my life. And so I'm always kind of doing this with the fruit of the Spirit. One second, my patience is great. And the next second, you know, I'm working on self-control. But it says in Ephesians 4, I think verse 7, to basically practice, train yourself to be godly. And that comes through all these trials and all these giants and all these things so that when you start writing these things down on your prayer journals or whatever you're doing and you look back and you're like, you know what? The Lord brought me through the Red Sea. He conquered the Egyptian army here and you have that stuff written down as a record. You'll take a new look at your giant and go, this thing ain't that big at all. And let him bring that giant out of the way too because that's what he does. He's in the business of slaying our giants. I love it. Number three, Caleb didn't hesitate. He goes, we can take this right now. Let's go up and take our land right now. Let's go take possession of it. So, makes me wonder, so what giants do you need? What land do you need to take possession of? What giants do you need to take possession of? Maybe there's something in your life that you need to add that will help you conquer the giant. Maybe you need more time in the Word because it says throughout the Scriptures that the, the Word is our sword. That is your only offensive weapon. So maybe you need to get in the Word more and just to know it. Because now you've got something that you can't slay your giant without a sword, right? You have no weapon. You've got a fantastic shield. So maybe you need to add something. Maybe you need to take something out. Maybe you've got a sin in your life, a pattern in your life. You have not yet worked it out. So it's like driving with the brakes on. You're almost accelerating, but not quite. You really got a serious limp. Because you have not taken, you haven't charged right in right away. You've been dealing with the same marital thing that you've been dealing with for 25 years, still not fixed, that giant is still very much in place. Maybe that's it. I don't know. We all have different giants for different reasons. But they're real. But he didn't hesitate. You know, I just read in a book the other day, it's talking about the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And he was talking about all the things that happen in our lives. And this guy was going down the road. He said, you know, for eternity past, everything was in the spirit realm. And then God created the heavens and the earth and humans. And now we're in this short time span of a physical realm. And then we got eternity future. And so his whole point was everything in the spiritual realm is by far more real than this. Isn't that interesting? I had never really thought of that before. Way more real than this. There's way more happening in the spiritual realm right now than we can possibly fathom. Way more. But we're looking at this little thing right here. So we need to get perspective on that. Because if I were to draw a timeline across this room and put a little dot right there in the middle of it, I'd say, that's your life, start to finish. How important is that? It is important, but not time-wise. Time-wise... Eternity is way more important than the spiritual realm, way more important. Number four, he knew what God expected. He said, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. Right? If he's pleased with us. Again, maybe you need to add something. Maybe you need to remove it. I don't know. But we want to be pleasing to the Lord, whether we, we die today or we die 50 years from now. Whether we have cancer or don't have cancer. Whether we're married, divorced, it doesn't matter. Let's stay pleasing to the Lord. 
Number five was that is that he knew God, and God certainly knew him. It says that the glory of the Lord appeared the second this group of people started talking about stoning them. The glory of the... Can you imagine if we were in here talking about the Lord and then he appeared? Would, it, would there be any doubt in anyone's mind as to whether the Lord is with us? Or if there is a God? Or if he's on our side? None of that would occur to you. Well, one, we'd be laying on the floor, probably unable to move. But my point is, he showed his face right then. And the people were like, oh... The Lord heard this. He's like, yeah, I've been listening to you guys all along. All along. It says in Daniel 9, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out. The second you started to pray, a word went out, this angel's telling him, which I've come to tell you because you are highly esteemed. You want to be highly esteemed in the Lord's mind and be high on his radar? Do what he asks you to do. I know that's a tall order. But one of the things that he's asking us to do is to get our eyes off the giants and put them where they need to be. Amen? So Caleb knew this. Your giants aren't a surprise to God. You don't bring things before the Lord and have him go, Oh, wow, I didn't realize you had cancer. I didn't realize your little girl needed another surgery. He knows that. You want to hear something really funky that'll mess up your theology? God may have put that giant there on purpose. Sometimes he does. That exact thing. Sometimes it's other people sinning against us. Sometimes, and most of the time, it's me shooting my own self in the foot. Right? That's why the giant's there. But sometimes God's doing it. Sometimes it's coming straight from him. I don't understand that. Except for... He's developing us, and he wants something out of that. I want to respond to that. I want to set my face like flint and like rock. No matter what, Lord, I'm keeping my eyes on you. These giants, I'm not going to allow these giants to be giants. They're not really giants. They're giants because I allow them to be giants. So there's no reason to fear them because I've created that. I have created that. And again, how do we get to, to that place? Remember who God is. Remember the Red Seas that he's parted for you in the past, right? He's done it many times. And then practice and put into place the things that he's already told you to do. If he wants you to be nice, then be nice. And watch that peace that will transcend all understanding. Let's pray. Lord, we just come before you because we in our own minds have created giants. Um, some of them are very, very real. That had nothing to do with us. Uh, some of them are man-made. And Lord, we just want to offer all of those things up at your altar. Just like Hezekiah did, Lord. He wrote these things down. He laid it out before you and told you and reminded you of all the good things he had done and, and the scary army that was out front as if you didn't know about it. But Lord, you responded because that's the kind of father you are. Lord, our biggest giants are puny to you. So I pray, if there's anyone here that wants to come to the altar and lay their giants before you, have them come up, Lord, as the worship team plays this last song, and allow us, Lord, to remove ourselves from this land of giants so that we can truly enter the promised land right here, right now. In your son's name, amen. Amen.